Well, this week in history, on March the 2nd, 1807, legislation to outlaw the importation of slaves into the US was passed by Congress. It was meant to prevent Americans from any involvement in the international slave trade, as well as being a way to start weaning America off its reliance on slavery. But as you're going to learn tonight, trading continued right up until 1863, when the Civil War War was, of course, well underway. In fact, a group of traders in New York made huge amounts of money running slaves across the Atlantic to Brazil and Cuba while other ships kept arriving on American shores. Uh, We're going to explore this illegal slave trade in This Week in History tonight with John Harris. John is the author of The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage. Hi, John. Welcome to uh, Tonight Life. Great. Thank you for having me. Uh, John, back when Americans were debating their constitution in 1787, the uh, the question of the future of slavery had actually been a, a very hot topic then. What discussions were had at that point about banning the importation of slaves? Yes, the, the big picture was what kind of nation, new nation was this going to be? Was it going to be guided by the lofty ideals of Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, all men were created equal, etc. Or was it going to be guided by some hard-nosed economic um, realities backed up by racism? And so in the Constitution, uh, 1787, um, a compromise is hammered out by those who want to keep slave trading and those who want to uh, diminish it. And the compromise is that Congress um, would not be allowed to ban the slave trade entirely for at least another 20 years. And that 20-year period takes us up to 1807. At that point, Congress was permitted under the Constitution to ban the, the slave trade entirely, and that's what they did. So what did that act, which was passed this week in history but came into effect in 1808, what, what did it actually ban? That ban in 1807, it banned um, American citizens from importing enslaved Africans into the United States. Some earlier um, legislation, a few years earlier, had banned Americans from importing slaves into other countries like Cuba and Brazil, which you mentioned. But 1807 was was important, was the, the key act for banning the slave trade into the United States. So really, from 1807, and that ban went into effect on January 1st, 1808, Americans should have had no involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. Now, that didn't mean that Americans wouldn't continue to have slavery in the United States. They did. And it also didn't ban the buying and selling of enslaved people within the U.S. And in fact, a large internal slave trade rose up as the transatlantic slave trade was supposed to be shut down. An internal slave trade within the United States became even bigger. 
But it was from 1807 going into effect in 1808 that Americans were not supposed to be transporting slaves from Africa into the United States or into any other country in the Americas. Yeah, um, John, what was the global context at that time in terms of moving towards the end of slavery? Had other countries also begun to move towards banning it or at least banning you know, the importation of slaves? Yes, they had. I mean, there's a similar um, collision going on as there was with the U.S. Constitution and in America. Um, on the one hand, you've got um, people who are wanting to end the slave trade, and a great example of that is actually in the island of Haiti. And in Haiti, enslaved people rose up in a rebellion against their uh, enslavers and defeated them. They actually threw off uh, not just the yoke of slavery, but threw out the French, and Haiti was a French colony back then. And that was the end of the slave trade to Haiti and to um, and of slavery itself, as well as um, French rule in that in that place in the Caribbean. So there's one example, and of course there are others who are pushing for abolition as well, notably in Britain and also in the United States. And some of these are doing it for religious reasons, others for humanitarian reasons, and so on. But on the other hand, you have a lot of people who really want to continue slave trading, and they are some in the U.S., but not many, but there are certainly others um, in Cuba and Brazil um, and in Africa and some Europeans. And um, what's motivating that largely is not um, simply the continued racism of the Atlantic world, but it's big economic interest. And when you look at Cuba, and you look at Brazil, at that time, there was a lar- large, large areas of uncultivated land. Um, and in these places and on that land, typically, um, enslaved laborers were cultivating sugar and coffee. And those were in big demand on global markets, including in, in Britain and all over the world, but especially in Europe. And so there's a huge economic interest in keeping this system going. So you've got a collision there. And really, that's what my work is about. Uh, John Harris is uh, here. He's the author of The Last Slave Ships, uh, New York and the End of the Middle Passage. So once this act came into effect then in in 1808, did some slave traders take it seriously and, and stop? Yes, some did. Some did. I mean, most did. Most backed out of the slave trade in, in the United States. Um, but some didn't, some didn't. Um, so what we find is that the United States is quite effective at shutting down the slave trade to its shores. And um, some stringent penalties actually were included in later legislation. In 1820, for example, um, a law was passed that, that stated that you know, if you're convicted of slave trading, then American citizens would be executed. So you know these laws had, had real teeth. But some slave traders continued, nevertheless, to slave trade, but they did not typically tend to bring enslaved people to the United States. Instead, they rerouted their ships uh, to um, to Cuba and to Brazil. So these ships would um, be running to Africa and then cross the Atlantic Ocean westward and would arrive in the island of Cuba or Brazil instead of coming to the American South. 
So just staying uh, in the US on US shores for a moment, John, um, it did what shut a lot of it down. We know that some ships did still continue to arrive. I mean, famously, there's the ship called the Clotilda. So you know, how many did make it to the US in that period between 1808 and, and the start of the Civil War? We're talking about maybe 10,000 souls, 10,000 men, women and children arriving in the United States in that time period. And the Clotilda, yes, is the the last one, and that's 1860. So on the U.S. side, it would have been plain to authorities, wouldn't it, that there were some slaves continuing to arrive? What what was going on when people sort of went, hang on, there's, there's obviously slaves still turning up on our shores? Yeah, and that that sets up a sets off a you know a firestorm, especially eighteen fifties and you know eighteen sixty, as I, I mentioned, when the United States is already in the teeth of a broader debate about the future of slavery itself, not just the slave trade. You know, so the idea that enslaved people are, are being brought from Africa is um, really. Um, it really provokes a strong reaction in the uh, anti-slavery circles, and particularly in the North, that that's happening. I mean, what's going on on the ground is a lot of um, corruption and bribery um, of, uh, of federal um, officials and uh, local officials as well who are looking the the other way. A lot of tactics like bringing captives to you know remote beaches and things like that where enforcement is limited anyway. So these are some of the tactics in the U.S. and those tactics are really replicated in Cuba and Brazil on a much larger scale. Uh, and let's have a look at Cuba and Brazil now, John. I mean, Brazil had made a half-hearted attempt to ban slave transportation in 1830, had it, but it, it was a half-hearted attempt. Yes, that was... Um, it, it was not um, enforced as stringently as it, it should have been, for sure. And, and actually, in the 1830s and 1840s, we were seeing tens of thousands of captives being imported illegally in Brazil, for example. And it's a kind of a similar story with Cuba. I mean, these are enormous, enormous numbers, 90,000 in one year in the 1840s. So Brazilian enforcement of their ban was really very very lax indeed. And those captives were brought in, um, in some, in most cases, by American vessels. And this is the interesting thing. The United States had not entirely backed out of the slave trade to its own shores, but close to it. But by contrast, and we're talking about, say, 10,000 souls to the United States versus over half a million souls to Brazil and to Cuba on American ships. So this is a huge part um, of the um, the slave trade that America is, um, is, is doing, is responsible for. Uh, were they making some pretty substantial profits to want to keep engaging in this trade? Absolutely. So if you, the slave trade um, it began around 1500 or so. So it stretched back about three centuries by this point. And if you look at the overall history of the slave trade, uh, well, if you look at its peak, if you look at its peak in the 1700s, you'd see profit rates of about 10%. If you look at this period that I'm looking at, and that's you know the middle of the 1800s, profit rates are reaching 90%. So there's an incredible economic incentive to continue doing this uh, evil work. 
Uh, John Harris is uh, here. He's the author of The Last Slave Ships, uh, telling us about, well, uh, basically uh, this illegal traffic in in slaves that was going on long after Americans were technically banned from having anything to do with with transporting slaves across the Atlantic Ocean. So um, Brazil, uh, John, got serious about stopping transportation in 1850. How did they go about that? Well, they they did um, did that in in conjunction with you know, some internal pressure from anti-slavery activists and imperial uh, reformists, and uh, with pressure outside from the British who actually bombed their ports in an effort to try to get them to shut this down. Oh, they were pretty so serious then. Wow. Yeah, they yeah they they were. So by eighteen fifty, uh, it really is shut down in, in Brazil. There's there's one more voyage in eighteen fifty six, but. Um, really, it's it's more or less shut down in Brazil, and the reaction to that's very interesting. I guess it's similar to what happened in the U.S. in 1808. Some Brazilians, most Brazilians and Portuguese as well, who were the main slave traders, they backed out of the slave trade. But a small number of others from Brazil, and also from Angola in Africa, which had been very much tied to the Brazilian slave trading market. These individuals, a small number, about 12 in total, uh, upped sticks and left, and they sailed for North America, they sailed for New York City. And it was there in Lower Manhattan, in the Merchant District of New York, that they placed themselves, and they established a brand new node in the transatlantic slave trade, New York City. And New York had not really been involved in the slave trade for about 100 years at this point. And at this at this moment, it becomes really the last major slave trading port in the United States and, and one of the most important late stage slave trading ports in the entire Atlantic world. Yeah, you never do think of New York as one of the uh, yeah the hotbeds of the slave transportation, do you? But there we go. So, how would an illegal voyage work then? Can you sort of talk us through how? Because I guess. Being technically illegal, they probably took some attempts to make sure that they weren't spotted, or or were they just completely brazen about it? They did take some steps, absolutely. So the the ships were purchased in New York City, and that was the biggest city and the biggest shipping market in the U.S. It was also the biggest financial market in the U.S. So it was an ideal place to establish themselves. So they purchased the ships there. Um, They would typically find a straw buyer, someone who would purchase the ship on their behalf, but um, just to give themselves legal coverage. So maybe a ship captain or a mate or someone like that. So the, the principals, often the Brazilians or the Portuguese, would, ha- would keep their names off the books, off the legal documents, and have somebody else um, to assume legal responsibility. And then the ship um, would be prepared for sale, and they would not put shackles and manacles and that kind of stuff on the, on the slave ship. Uh, that would be too obvious. Um, but if you knew what you were looking for, you would notice that this was a slave ship. There'd be a lot of extra planking, a lot of extra wood on the ship. And that would be for building a slave deck on which enslaved people would be forced to lie during the Middle Passage. That would be built by Carpenter on the way out to Africa. There'd be an awful lot of... Uh, barrels of food and sometimes of water as well for provisioning um, for the captives. And that would be an unusual thing to carry for 
what was supposed to be, or what at least was meant to look like, a legal voyage to Africa to trade in, in palm oil and cola nuts and things like that. So if you knew what you were looking for, you would notice what was going on. But of course, with so much flow, money flowing around, the slave traders are very happy to bribe officials in somewhere like New York. And that's exactly what they did. And so the ships typically got off just fine. Right, yeah, so no one had the incentive to really go down to the port and look for the, the very obvious clues that you're saying were there. Um, John, as the, the century progressed, though, the British government were really pushing hard to shut the slave trade down. They employed this ring of spies to try to catch people. How did this work? Yeah, I mean, Britain's an interesting history in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, you know, Britons will often talk a lot about uh, their efforts to suppress the slave trade, and that's what we're going to see here. And, you know, that's in contrast to Britain's role in the slave trade for centuries earlier, when it was one of the biggest slave trading nations. But yes, by this point, Britain is making a big effort to suppress the slave trade. They're not only policing their own slave trade, but they're suppressing, they're policing the slave trade of other nations, right? So they are trying to go after um, American slave ships, uh, Portuguese slave ships, Brazilian slave ships, you know, ships under any flag whatsoever. And this is part of their, um, what they describe as their you know, humanitarian, um, humanitarian effort in the 19th century. So the spies are part of that. You know, one of the frustrations that the British have is that they don't have good intelligence. They don't, they're not inside the operations of the slave traders. And so what they do is they typically try to hire uh, former slave traders or other people in the know um, who can give them information on who owns these ships, what the ships are called, when they're heading, basically the itinerary of these voyages, so that, that they can communicate that to the British men of war, which are on the high seas, and that those uh, slave ships can be intercepted by the British. And so this is this is what they're up to in this spy campaign, and they have well over a dozen spies dotted around the Atlantic Ocean. The spy campaign really ramps up in the 1850s and 1860s when New York becomes the key node in the slave trade in in the United States. So if a British man of war was able to intercept uh, an American ship that was engaging in the slave trade, did it did it actually have the right to you know confiscate the cargo or you know how would that work then when the Americans go well, just rack off what you know do you have any dominion over yeah. us how, how did that work? Well, that's yeah, that's a great question because the British didn't have the right to do it under American law. Americans said that only only American uh, naval cruisers can intercept ships with the American flag, and this is part of the reason why these Brazilians. Um, come to New York because they realize they've got protection of the American flag. The British can't police American ships. But the British want to do it anyway. They recognize this is a huge loophole and they don't want slave traders to exploit it. And they recognize that these slave traders are often not actually Americans. And so the British are saying, these guys don't have, the, really, they don't have the right to fly the American flag. So that is why you see the British intercepting American flag vessels. And they do that by saying, you know, we've got spies on the inside. They're telling us that the true owners are Brazilians and they're Portuguese. They're not really Americans. And so we have the right to do this. And the Americans 
the American government is is furious about this, um, and they're desperate to protect their their flag. So we see some real diplomatic spats in the 1850s and 1860s over over the slave trade, and it really has to do with American jealousy of their own sovereignty and their their own flag and slave traders' efforts to use that American uh, obsession with the sovereignty. Um, so that's how we end up in this complicated diplomatic situation and the use of spies. Well, let's face it, relations between those two countries hadn't been very good for a century or so, had they? So this would have been a, another point of, of tension. So um, did the continuation of the slave trade really fuel economic growth and, and production in those areas, you know, Brazil and Cuba, where slaves were still arriving? It absolutely did. Absolutely did. And take Cuba, for example. Cuba was the world's largest producer of sugar by 1830, the world's largest producer of sugar by 1830. And that was a product that was shipped all over all over the world. And it was produced almost exclusively by enslaved people. And huge numbers of them are arriving from Africa. So Cuba had been involved in the slave trade for hundreds of years. And yet 1859 is the the second largest number of annual slave importations in that year, 1859. And so and this was illegal. So we're talking about very large numbers, um, a lot of complicity by officials at, at the highest level in Cuba. Slave traders making huge amounts of money. Uh, European and American consumers, you know, eating up this this sugar. And really a, a global uh, capitalist system based on the oppression of, of black people. Um, and it's making a lot of people very rich. So uh, back in America, as we were saying, the trade had died down somewhat, although there were uh, some ships getting through. But some traders did look at what was happening in New York and thought, well, maybe we should actually chance our luck and, and try again to get ships to, uh, to, to America. Did that kind of bring the whole thing into to sharp relief uh, by this point? Because we're sort of getting into the, the, uh, the late 1850s, early 1860s here. It did, yes. And the crucial context here is that the United States is deeply divided over the issue of slavery itself by the 1850s. And of course, that's going to lead us to the Civil War uh, breaking out in 1861. So by the late late 1850s, when, as you rightly say, a handful of individuals in the South, <clears throat> uh, which was quite pro-slavery, to say the least, when they decided let's send some ships to Africa and reopen the slave trade to the American South. This um, really got the attention of anti-slavery people in in the North and and other parts of the United States. And it really helped ramp up the divisions in the United States um, that ultimately led to the Civil War. So, I mean, if you look at someone like Abraham Lincoln, of course, he was making his political ascendancy in the 1850s, and he is—he's anti-slavery. He's speaking out very strongly against the transatlantic slave trade. Whereas um, in the South, uh, slaves are arriving from Africa, um, like the Clotilda that you mentioned earlier in the 1860s. So it really lights um, a fire 
um, and helped divide the nation even further. And so it's really the election of Abraham Lincoln that, the, well, heads to civil war, but also puts an end to this, this illegal trade. So how did he approach, because there was obviously all this evidence anywhere you cared to look, that there was this illegal importation of slaves and international trading still ongoing. So what, what did he do once he, he took power? Well, you know, one of the f- first things he did, ironically, was to recall the American squadron from the African coast. There was a small and really pathetic squadron on the African coast that was supposed to be patrolling for American slave ships. And he immediately brought them back, which was not a good sign, but it was because, yes, the Civil War was beginning. And that was Lincoln's priority, was to uh, you know, bring the Union back uh, together. Um, but he, but after that, he did move quite quickly against the slave trade. He um, replaced a, a few key officials in New York, uh, put in people who were serious about suppressing the slave trade. He um, really guided through a treaty with the British, which allowed for the very first time the British to inter- intercept American flagged vessels on the high seas. And did they? And that I would really, have imagined really they would have liked to have finally been able to do that. Yes, it's, this was signed, uh, you know, ratified by the Senate in um, 1862, and uh, and that really had a big effect. The slave traders could no longer operate of the American flag, and and that in conjunction with the execution of a slave trader, which Lincoln Lincoln refused to commute the death sentence, the first time that law of 1820 had ever been fully carried out. Those really those three things. Um, caused the slave traders to, to panic and they fled just as they'd swept into New York. They swept out again and fanned out across uh, Europe and, and the Caribbean. But really, this is not quite the death knell of the slave trade overall, but it's, it's you know, a critical injury. And within five years, the entire slave trade, which had lasted three and a half centuries, would collapse. So where did they go, um, those slave traders who, who fled from New York? Um, I mean, did they, you know, w- w- which countries were they able to still put slaves into during that time? Well, these slave traders um, left for, some left for Cuba, and a handful left for Spain and Portugal. In fact, one of them was a woman, and that's actually the next my next project, a woman called Mary Watson. She was a New Yorker. And she fled uh, to Seville in Spain and in Lisbon in Portugal, and she tried to to go again. Uh, She thought that she'd be able to keep slave trading. Uh, In the end, she was shut down by the American authorities, the consulate, basically, in both of those countries. And um, she realized she couldn't. She, her passport was taken away from her. She couldn't use the American flag any longer because of the new treaty. And she ended up um, dying, actually, um, in Lisbon, allegedly drinking herself to death because the, her business, her industry w- was over. So she's an example of the really the death of the slave trader, in this case, the death of a slave trader, the last one in American history and, and the last, last woman slave trader as well. Were there many other female slave traders? Uh, that's what I'm looking into right now. Actually, um, it it turns out that not too many in this in this period, but there are, in my estimation, well over a thousand women who were involved in the slave trade over three and a half centuries, and they were investors um, and, and 
all kinds of roles. Many of them were widows who had inherited shares in slave trading voyages from their from their deceased husbands. So that there's women are absolutely a part of the story too. So when did the final slave ship arrive uh, in the U.S.? Was that the Clotilda? Yeah, that was the Clotilda, and this is interesting because it was just recently found in, in the mud of the uh, Mobile River in, in Alabama. And the question is now, you know, should should that be left there in the river or should we try to, to raise it up and maybe place it in a museum? So this is very current history and Netflix documentary about it now and a lot of attention. So there's a lot of attention on this, this, this these issues. Uh, and John, once that, that trade had ended, you know, the Clotilda had arrived, I mean, slavery was then finished, so there was no point even trying to import slaves in, into the US. But with that trade that was still ongoing, I mean, Cuba sounds like it was pretty well the last bastion. How much longer did that trade continue for? So the last slave ship from New York, I'll just finish out that story, it leaves in 1863, and that's when Lincoln was shutting things down. And the last slave ship to arrive anywhere in the Americas, um, to cross the Atlantic Ocean, um, arrived in 1867 in, in Cuba. So that's the end of the slave trade. And, and part of the reason why it, it fell apart, and we've talked about some of that already, but it was also because the, the Cubans looked at what was happening just you know, a few hundred miles away to the north in the American south. And the American South was the largest slave society in the Americas, 4 million enslaved people by the 1860s. And they saw the Emancipation Proclamation, they saw the end of slavery in the United States. And many uh, Cuban enslavers thought, we're nervous, let's not import any more enslaved people from Africa, let's just tried to hold on to slavery itself. They became sort of less gruesomely ambitious, if you will, from their perspective. And let's shut down the slave trade. And so that's the end of of the slave trade. And, and, and slavery itself did continue in Cuba and in Brazil until the 1870s and 1880s. And were those the last two countries in the world? Certainly in, in the Americas, yes. Um, the world, that that brings up a very contemporary question, you know, of, you know, how do you define slavery? I mean, slavery continues to this day in, in other forms, and, and many analysts would say in even greater numbers than the ones that we've been discussing this evening. Yes, and when you say that, I can immediately think of an ex- Australian example of uh, people who were, were taken from their island homes and forcibly removed to Australia to work in a period, I think, contemporaneous or, or a bit later than that. So, yes, a lot of questions uh, still about the um, the legacy of, of slavery and its many forms. John, thank you so much for uh, joining us on Nightlife to, um, to take us through this story. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, That is John Harris. John is the author of The Last Slave Ships, New York and the End of the Middle Passage. It's a a part of history I had no idea about, having thought that, well, when it was outlawed, it was outlawed. But no, a lot of money still to be made and people kept doing it, as you uh, you just heard, for uh, many, many years after the, uh, the transportation of slaves across the Atlantic had been outlawed. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 